is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. In 1977, at the height of the Cold War, Anatoly Skaronsky, I tried practicing that, Skaronsky, was a brilliant mathematician. He was a young man. He was also a brilliant chess player. Uh, He was arrested by the KGB. He was arrested by the KGB because he kept trying to immigrate to Israel. He was a a Soviet Jew. Uh, He spent 13 years in in the Soviet gulags. And uh, during that time, he spent those 13 years studying the, the, uh, the Psalms, all 150 of them in, uh, in the Hebrew. Uh, Skaronsky later said, what did it give me? He wrote this in a letter. What did it give me studying the Psalms like that? He says, gradually, and I quote, gradually my feeling of great loss and sorrow changes to one of bright hopes. Skaronsky so cherished the book of uh, the Psalms while he, was in, uh, while he was in prison that when they took it away from him, he laid out in the snow and said he wasn't going to move until they gave it back to him. And they gave him the book of Psalms uh, back. During those 13 years, his wife traveled all over our country, you know, uh, accepting honorary degrees for him and, and evidently just, you know, putting his case out there. And uh, this is what she said to a university audience. She said, and I quote, in a lonely cell in, in, Christopel, in the Christopel prison, locked alone with the Psalms of David, Anatoly found expression for his innermost feelings in the outpourings of the King of Israel thousands of years ago. If you happen to be our guest this morning, we're studying through the book of Psalms, and we're just sort of beginning this pilgrimage, and we've entitled this Encouraging One Another uh, in the Psalms. And last week, Micah talked about uh, the Psalms as the heart cry of the authors who wrote them. And he said they're laden with intense emotion. If you were here, you heard him say those things. And uh, they teach us how to speak to God in some ways. They teach us how to speak to God about our pain and about our hurt and how to be honest and transparent. And I think that that's what Anatoly Saransky found during his imprisonment, that the Psalms enabled him to speak his heart to God. So there's a practicality in, in wanting to, uh, to, to teach through the Psalms like this. Like I said, there's 150 of them. They're, they're independent. Each Psalm is independent of another one. So therefore, you travel a lot during the summer, as do I. And so that you can miss. Your, your, it's not building. Content is not building. Also, I'm gone several summer, Sundays in summer. And it just it allows the, whoever's filling in at the teaching time, gives them a lot of freedom to teach the Psalms. And uh, so I think that uh, we're going to do this maybe for another number of summers. This would be a great way to work through the book uh, of Psalms. And uh, before I left on vacation, I was reading Paul's writings and, and I came across the verse that's real familiar. It says, encouraging one another by singing the Psalms to one another. And I remember thinking since we were planning this, you know, why does Paul tell us to sing the Psalms uh, together? And the answer is because encapsulated in the Psalms are these great truths that he wants us to know that he believes will encourage us. When, when Pastor Michael began a couple of weeks ago, 
ago, he reminded, reminded us not just of the power of the lyrical part of the Psalms, but how the music itself it can encourage us along with, along with the, the lyrics. Now, I want to concede something that's really true, and that's that not everybody is affected. Not everybody's affected by music in the same way. Um, we're not all profoundly affected by music, but, but I tell you what I am. Music really does something to my heart. And when you couple it with lyrics, it's especially powerful. I remember when we did that, uh, I don't remember what it was, vacation Bible school maybe or something else. We sang, sing joy, sing joy. Remember that song? And I, I tell you what, that's only two lyrics I remember. <laughs> Uh, but but the, but those lyrics coupled with that music just I mean they light me up and I've loved it when Jamie in the past has had us do that congregationally sing joy sing joy and, and so it's the words but it's also uh, the the music and so. Paul tells us, sing the psalms to one another because the music helps take that truth and just rivet it to uh, our heart. But today we're going to look at Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 is known as a psalm of confidence. In fact, Charles Spurgeon called this the song of holy confidence. It was, if not his favorite, one of Martin, Luther, Martin Luther's favorite psalms. When he was going through a tough time, he had been excommunicated by Pope Leo X. You remember, Luther didn't want to leave the holy universal, that's what Catholic means, the holy universal church. He didn't want to leave it. He wanted to reform it. But uh, Pope Leo X had excommunicated him. Charles V had put a bounty on his head. And uh, at that time, they were facing a, a plague, a pandemic that so dwarfs the pandemic that we've been in. It was 1527, the bubonic plague was sweeping across Europe, and it was especially difficult uh, in Germany. They say more than 30% of the populace, population died. Just to put it in our terms, I think 650 people, they say, 650,000 people, excuse me, have succumbed to COVID. 30% of our, of our nation would have been, we're, let's just give it three, 300 million, that'd be over 100 million people would have died of the bubonic plague. Uh, uh, they called it the Black Death. And you talk about people living in fear. People lived in fear of getting the, the Black Death. And so they were leaving towns and cities. They didn't want to be in the towns and cities. And Luther and uh, his wife, Katie, they struggled with whether they should stay in the town in which they lived and continue to minister to the church he shepherded or whether they should leave. And they decided that they would stay in the city and shepherd their people. In fact, they turned their house into a hospital for the dying. And I believe it was Katie that got the plague but did not die of it. Uh, tragically, their eight-month-old daughter did die of complications, they think, of, of the plague. But this was an overwhelming time for, for Martin Luther. In fact, they said that Martin Luther at times would faint would just flat out faint, overwhelmed by the emotion and I guess the stress of what he was living under at that time. Now in the middle of that time, Psalm 46 was the psalm that he, they say that he anchored himself to. And uh, in this time of weakness and pestilence, listen to this, Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. And they say that the inspiration for that song is Psalm 46. And if you, I don't know if you, it's so funny because for the first time, you know, where the, the verse we sang, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the floods of mortal ills prevailing, 
I never realized it till this morning when I was going over that, that he's referencing the black death. He's referencing the plague. And in the middle of all of that, he says, God is our fortress. God is our stronghold. God is our, our refuge. So when he was at his bleakest times, they say that he would say something like this, come let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Now obviously he probably had the Psalm 46 to some other music. I don't think he meant come let's sing a mighty fortress is our God. I don't think he meant that. He meant the Psalm, right? And, uh, and what was it about the psalm? Why did Luther turn to this psalm? And this is what he said. We sing this psalm to praise, to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church, his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So why did Luther find this psalm to be so encouraging? Why did Spurgeon call this the great holy confidence psalm? Well, as I looked over it, I came away with three assurances that God wants to give us in the psalm. And I want to share them with you. And I'm hopeful that they're going to encourage you. And I'm hopeful, in I'm hopeful that in times of weakness for you, or in times like so many of the songs, even the last one that Michael and the, and the, and the men did, I mean, it spoke to this, right? That, that in these times of weakness, in these times of trouble, this psalm can be an encouragement to us. So let me show you the three assurances that I think the psalm gives us about who God is to us in all, at all times, but especially when we're struggling. Here's the first one. God is a refuge for us. I mean, nothing, nothing really, you know, I mean, it says it right there, right? God is our refuge and a strength and a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Psalm is divided into three parts. Each part ends with the word Selah. Nobody knows exactly what the word Selah means. I mean, it's been disputed. A lot of folks think it means verse. I'm going to take it as this is the first verse, into the first verse, into the second verse, into the third verse. The first verse, he tells us God is a refuge for us. God is a refuge and a strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Selah. God is a refuge. Verse 1. He's a fortress in verse 7 and verse 11. Two words communicating the same thing, just a slightly variant uh, vantage point. They both offer us protection, but a refuge is a place we run to to seek shelter. Maybe you've experienced this before, but I've been driving and, and it's being, it's, it's pelting, it's pelting your car. You can't even see. In fact, this week, I think Michael and I were together driving somewhere and it was so bad and the hail was so bad. We pulled into a gas station to get under, to get under one of those things because the hail was so bad. But, but when I thought of this, I thought of the times that it's been raining like that and I press the garage door button at my house and I drive my car into the garage and I press the button and the door goes down. And I mean, it's still pelting the garage and the windows, but now I'm refuged from the storm. It's pounding my house, but I have peace on the inside. The psalmist reminds us that God is a refuge to us. And though the winds and the rains of 
adversity or just assaulting against our life, he says God is a shelter where we can find refuge. Now listen to this. That idea of God as a refuge to us, I mean, it is just littered through the book of Psalms over and over again. Tens upon tens of references. But here's just two. Psalm 59 verse 16. But I will sing of your strength and I will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. Psalm 94 verse 22 says, But the Lord is my refuge, my God is the rock of my protection. God says, in this, with the parallelism that, that uh, Micah spoke about last week with regard to poetry, in this parallelism, God is saying, God is a refuge, God is a strength, God is a helper, God is the one who protects me in the midst of that adversity that's hitting me. He's the garage that I get to pull into when the rains and the hail of hardship are just falling on me. He strengthens me. Now listen to me carefully here. I want to make a point and I want you to really follow me on this. I do not mean, and I don't think the psalmist means this either, that the rains and the winds stop or that the storm stops. I think what he means is that God becomes a shelter for my soul. And by soul, I simply mean the inner man or inner woman that you are. He becomes that the shelter for that inner person so that according to the psalm, you will not despair and you will not be afraid. He becomes, he becomes a refuge, not necessarily that the storm goes away, but he comes a place that you can drive into and though the storm is battering you, your soul is, is protected. Your soul is covered and strengthened. Without knowing how this works, I simply want to testify to you that when Shepherd died and the winds of, of grief and rain just pelted my life and they blew hard against my soul, God refuged me. Now the grief didn't go away and the pain didn't go away and somehow another Shepherd didn't come back to life, but God was the garage. God was the refuge. I don't know how it works. I really don't. But he was the refuge for my soul when, when the world and everything in it came to land on my life, right? He strengthened me and he helped me. He was my refuge in that time. Richard Wormbrand, who was the Romanian pastor who was in prison for 13 years, constantly tortured during that time. Here's something that he wrote. He said, there was once a fiddler. Actually, I don't know how long Richard, I confused that with what I said earlier. I don't know if it was 13 years, maybe longer. But this is what he wrote. He says, there was, and I quote, there was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everyone danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care if they are considered insane. Those in the storm experience a refuge from God that people who haven't been in the storm know not what. And I don't mean that it makes you privileged. I'd rather you know than me know, okay? But here's the deal. When you're in a storm and, and it's God says, I'm going to be your helper. I'm going to be your refuge. I'm going to stand there with you. I'm not, I'm not going to let you be beat to death by the hail. I am going to protect your soul. And I want to be clear. This is not a promise that God is going to take away 
your suffering and your pain and the hail and the rain. It's not that it's going to stop. It's just that he's going to protect your soul. And, and people who say that God promises to take away the storm, they do a disservice to God. They really do. Because I, I cannot find anywhere in the scripture where God promises that he's going to remove the storm or the pain. In fact, I would say to you, the storm may grow more intense and the pain may grow even greater, but, but God is going to refuge you in the midst of all of that. This past week, the past two weeks, Margaret's gotten good cancer reports. The first one came back, her PET scan was clear, no cancer in her body. But they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted to do a bone marrow scan and did a bone marrow scan. Margaret has no cancer in her bone marrow. It's really good news. She still has to go surgery. She still has surgery ahead of her, but really good news. But you know, in the same time that Margaret got the good news, I guarantee you there are countless brothers and sisters around this country, around this world, who got devastating news. The cancer's back. It's spread all through your body. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Your job came back after the pandemic, but I tell you, there's a bunch of brothers and sisters who got fired and maybe at this point haven't been able to find a job that sustains them where they were, right? Your marriage reconciled, but for someone else, their spouse left them. God has not promised, listen to me, God has not promised that if you just have enough faith in what you want, that God's going to do it. God has never said that. God's never committed himself to that. And if you operate under that kind of thought, you're setting yourself up to be greatly disappointed in the future. Now, please, don't run to the other extreme of what I'm saying. I'm telling you that in the midst of the hardest time of your life, God's going to be the garage in which you can get out of the pelting of the, of the hail and the rain. He's going to refuge you, but that does not mean he's going to remove the storm from your life. And if, and if you go around telling people that he is, you're, 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 you're doing them a great disservice. The psalmist says, God is a refuge. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to despair. Though the whole world fall into the ocean, though, though your whole world, listen, let's metaphorically use that. Though your whole world falls into the ocean, you don't have to despair or be afraid because God is sheltering your inner person. He's refuging you. He's harboring you. He's protecting your mind and your spirit so you don't despair and so that you don't lose heart. Let me give you three gifts that Jesus gives us to refuge us. This is why I believe that God is my refuge. Because number one, Jesus gives rest to my soul. This is what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, again, I don't know how that works. But I know Jesus says, if you're in me, you're going to be able to rest in the middle of the greatest storm that you ever go through. And Jesus gives us security. Here's the second one. Jesus gives us security. Paul says, nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, uh, our Lord. I think it's in the book of Hebrews, I think, where God says, I'll never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So I'm telling you, pray, and God often, he rescues us by, by shutting the storm down. The disciples are in the middle of a storm. He said, peace, be still, and the storm went away. Sometimes God makes your storm go away, but sometimes he doesn't. 
But in the middle of that, I tell you, he's never going to leave you. He's going to walk right with you. He's going to be there in the middle of the storm. He's going to refuge your soul. He's going to refuge your heart. He's going to refuge that inner you. He's going to protect you. And then the third thing, Jesus gives you hope. <laughs> I am the resurrection. My kingdom is here and he's coming. And, and, and there's hope for the future. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And I, I got to tell you, I'm not exactly sure what Paul meant when he wrote that. I mean, he could mean it in the micro, he could mean it in the, in the, in the right now, that God's going to cause everything to work out good right now, you know. But I have a feeling that he has the long game in, in mind there. And he's saying that God's going to cause all things to work out for good in the long game. In other words, he's going to raise us from the dead, we'll be a part of his kingdom, and all things will be made right. I think that's what he's referencing, maybe. And the reason I say that is because not everything works out good the way I want it to work out. And sometimes my, my loved ones are suffering or I'm suffering or I can't, I'm not getting healing like I need healing and my, I'm in misery physically. Listen, God's going to rescue, God's going to refuge your soul even if you're still in the midst of all of that. So if you're in a terrible spot, let God be your refuge. Let him give you rest. Let him give you peace. Let him give you hope. But here's the second thing in the second stanza. God is not just our refuge, but God is our resource. And the second part goes like this. There's a river. It streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning's dawn. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. He repeats that a couple of times in the psalm. You might think that's a strange, strange, a strange transition from a refuge to there's a river that, that delights the city of God. Well, it's, it's really kind of cool. Listen to this. Jerusalem is one of the major old cities that was not built on a river. So if you're not built on a river and you're a walled-in city, what's your problem? Water, right? And so when the king of Assyria came against Hezekiah, he thought he could just... Uh, he, uh, I don't know, maybe it wasn't Hezekiah. I don't know what king he was against. But he, the king of Assyria came against Jerusalem. He thought he would make them surrender by cutting off their water. But what he didn't know was Hezekiah had built a 2,000-foot aqueduct from, from the spring of, uh, what's the name of the spring? It's the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam. And that little stream supplied all the water they needed during, during the attack. Now listen, that river in this psalm, that river is a picture of God resourcing the city of God. And for us, metaphorically, it is a picture of God resourcing us with a river that runs deep into our souls and supplies our need. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the, dawn, when the morning dawns. Listen, we are privileged to be able to have this resource from God. God that is always there and refreshes and is our daily strength and is our gladness and our joy. Pastor Michael shared from Psalm 1, the righteous are like a tree planted by the water. The water provides everything the tree needs. And in this psalm, the nations rage, the kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The psalmist says God's power is resourcing us. He's always with us. 
I think this is so, so cool. Maybe this is why Martin Luther and Spurgeon found this psalm to be so encouraging. Because they looked at the second verse and they said, yep, God is the river. That when everything is pelting us from without, God is the river that's feeding me from within. God is the river that's resourcing me. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And it is pleasing to God to resource every one of you who follow him. He's resourced every one of us. He, he is a stronghold to us, but he's not just a refuge, but he's a refuge in which he also provides for your soul what, what you need. Now, two thoughts on that. Here's the first thought. That the resources that God gives us in the midst of the storm and in the tumult, the resources that he provides for my soul, listen, it is the person of God's spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that God gives to every one of us to resource us every day of our life. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and he's going to be with you and in you. And he's never going to leave you. And he's going to teach you. And he's going to empower you. And he's going to resource you. The Holy Spirit is the person who's resourcing every one of us in the midst of our storms. And so remember that? Remember the quote from... Uh, the, the Romanian pastor, he says, it's, it's like the, the fiddler playing this great song and everybody's dancing, but people can't hear, the deaf man can't hear the music. Well, the Holy Spirit resources the people who are in the middle of the storm. Maybe the rest of us don't know how or can't see it, but he's that river that feeds the city of God. He's the person who's resourcing us. In fact, I want to suggest to you when Jesus said, I must go away, what he was saying was, I must go away so that the Spirit of God can come and resource every single one of you. And listen, the Spirit of God is in you. He's never going to leave you. He's empowering you and he's helping you. And I don't know what your storm is. I mean, I know some of your storms. I know some of your storms. But whatever the storm is, I mean, I'm telling you, God is with you. He's refuging your soul and he is feeding your soul with what you need to endure. And I think that's what, uh, I think that's what Martin Luther and Spurgeon saw. But, but here's my second thought that I had from, as I meditated on this psalm this week. Here's, uh, here's the second thought I had about that resourcing, that it's not passive. That resourcing is not passive. Even if we go back to Psalm 1 and the tree planted by the, rivers, by the river of water, right? The tree has to put down roots to draw the water from the river to feed its soul. So this resourcing isn't passive. God has given you his spirit, but you've got to draw on the spirit of God within you. You've got to draw on his power in your life. You've got to tap into God's resources. And if you don't know how to do that, I'm going to tell you right now. Here it is. Submit yourselves to God therefore resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God draw near to God and he will draw near to you draw near to God and he will resource your life why do we think that we don't draw near to God and somehow another God owes us power to endure you know the storms in our life he doesn't draw near to God so many of us want to have a relationship with God but we don't want to draw near 
We're not willing to pay the price to draw near to God. We're not willing to sacrifice our own wills to draw near to God. We're not willing to say, God, I'm willing to step off the throne of my life and let you have that position. That's why we don't draw near to God. It's too hard. It costs too much. But I'm telling you, God says, I'm the river and I've given you the person of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a passive resourcing. You must draw near to God. You must, you must look to him. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God has given you everything you need for godliness. Now, please, this is not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm not saying that at all. There, if, if God was not resourcing us, you would have no ability to do nothing, but God is resourcing you. He's promised, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to carry you through it. But you've got to draw near to God. You've got to sink your roots down into the Lord. He's our refuge. How do you tap into that? How do you draw near to God? I know that's still, that's still metaphorical, isn't it, when I say draw near to God? That's still metaphorical. How do you do it? Well, it's you seek Him. You seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because the one who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Ah, oh, Jimmy, you're still on the metaphorical plane. What does it mean to seek him? Well, that means you pray. It means you, you call on him. You, you, you look to him. You, you read your Bible and say, God, I want to know you more. You tell him I want to know you more. You walk in obedience to what you know that God wants you to do. You listen to his voice when you know God, and you know when God's telling you to do things. You know when God's telling you not to do this. You know when God is telling you draw near, right? Ann talked about us in, in VBS this last past week, you know, teaching little children to love the church. You say you follow Jesus. Why don't you love the church? Why, why, and I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about why don't you love me and love your brothers and sisters enough to be here to encourage one another? Why do you compromise that? That's not drawing near to God. That's not, that's not seeking after the Lord. You seek him by calling on him, praying, saying, God, I want to know you. Please, by your spirit, resource me, teach me, lead me. And you read your Bible and you believe him and you love him. And I mean, I'm trying to be practical. I don't know how to be practical. And it's not like, I'm not saying do A, B, C, D, E, and that's drawing near to God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying that drawing near to God is, it's calling out to him. It's crying out. It's reading his word. It's praying. It's saying, God, I want to know you. It's all of those things. But God has resourced you. This psalm is so encouraging because God is my refuge. And then God is my resource. And then ultimately, and I'm finished with this, God, God is ultimately our redeemer. Look at the last verse. Come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He, means, he brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Now I'm telling you, this last stanza could be talking about how God just wins a war here and there for Israel. But I think this last stanza is pointing to the day when God wins all wars and brings all wars to an end. And Jesus comes back and he is exalted in all the earth. 
He's going to be exalted in all the earth. I think it's pointing to the day when God redeems everything and shatters every bow, destroys every spear. There won't be any need of those things because Jesus will be Lord over all. On that day, we'll stop fighting and we will know that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he'll be exalted, not just in my life and in your life, but he will be exalted in all the earth. When Jesus returns, there'll be a final war. He's going to destroy all his enemies. Listen to the last book, last not last book of the Old Testament, last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Verse 15 and 16 says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, so that those slain by the Lord shall be many. Verse 22, same chapter. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all Flesh. Malachi 4.4, 4, for look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies. Whoa, Lord of armies, where we heard that, Psalm 46. Not leaving them root or branches, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord. The psalmist says, the Lord of armies is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. There is coming a day when God will remove the curse from the earth and he's going to remove everything that's wrong and he's going to recreate it in perfection. And I'm telling you, folks, I believe that's what the last verse is pointing to. And I think that's why all of us can just rejoice in this. God is the one who is going to repair and renew and fix everything and make all things right. All those who have rejected the revelation of God, all those who have rejected the Son will die. They will be destroyed, the scripture says. But as for us, we shall be redeemed. We shall be his forever. We shall be immortal. We shall never die. Maybe you're uncomfortable with me talking like that because you think, man, all the, all the secularists and unbelievers, man, they're going to be laughing at you talking about being immortal. I mean, isn't that for the Marvel cartoons and all of that kind of stuff? Folks, listen, that's the promise of God. You shall be made immortal and have eternal life. That is our hope. That's the hope of glory, that we shall rise one day and never die and live not just forever, but live with God forever and live with each other forever in a world that's been redeemed and fixed and the curse removed. May God hasten that day. I'd like to invite you now to receive the gift of eternal life by putting your faith in Jesus. I mean, this is serious. This isn't just a perfunctory thing. You know, I don't even hardly do this at the end of my sermon talks, right? But I'm doing it today. I want to give you an invite to put your faith in Jesus. Right now, I want to invite you to surrender your life and give it to Jesus. To refuge yourself in him, because death is coming. To refuge yourself in him. To let him resource your life. 
to let him redeem you in the end. I'm asking you, I'm begging you in the name of Christ. Would you be reconciled to God this morning? Would you put your trust in the Lord Jesus right now, this very hour? God sits in his heaven and does whatever he pleases. And I'm telling you, he's pleased to save everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. If you are willing today to put your faith, and I, I told we had a new members, be encouraged by this. We had a new members class this morning, and I think we had like eight people maybe in it, something like that. It was a lot. I was encouraged by that. And, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. That's what happens when you get old. Anyway, God is pleased to do whatever he, he, he wants, and he's willing to save you if you're willing to come to him in faith. So I just, man, are you willing this morning to put your faith in him? Listen, if you're on the live stream right now, and you're watching this now, or you're watching it later, you can receive the Lord Jesus right now, too. I'm talking to you on the live stream. Don't do this very often, either, but I'm talking to you. It's time for you to get off the fence and put your hope and trust in Jesus and follow him. And in this room, isn't it time for you to stand up for Jesus? Some of you young people, isn't it time that you take an open stand for Christ and stand for him and say, I want to follow Jesus? It's time. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.